0: Okay, this is Charlie, and this is the uh, podcast, the first one of 2018, uh, To Hell and Back, which is applications um, of various lessons from DBT and other places to um, adversity in life, and uh, I want to uh, just make a couple of announcements at the beginning um one is i just want to invite as i've invited before anyone who does listen to this is listening or does listen um you know i i want to invite any feedback or questions to me uh at my email address c the letter c dot robert dot swenson s-w-e-n-s-o-n at gmail.com um just because it's such a uh, I don't get much feedback um I get a little bit and it's very helpful every bit of it so um, the other thing is to say you know the first four of the um, podcasts are on my website I've been hearing from different people who've found them and listened to them and it's very interesting for me to hear back and um, to the first two were uh, about uh, the coping with the hurricane in Puerto Rico uh, Hurricane Maria uh, with uh, A colleague there uh, who described his experience Domingo Marquez and then uh, there were two more that I've done and they were really um, real explorations talking discussion about um, the process of observing as a mindful act increasing awareness observing as such a core of the core of trying to have skills on board for coping with adversity in life, which includes emotions, but other things too. A second one I got a little bit into, the skill of describing as well, which is a DBT skill. Um, the next two after this one, just to let you know, and I'll also send out an announcement um, Will be January seventeenth and thirty first, in other words, not next week, but the week after, and then not the following week, but the week after. So the seventeenth and the thirty first. and I'll be and uh, in, I've invited a guest, and she's agreed to come on, and we've discussed it. Um, it's Cedar Coons that some of you may know or know of. Uh, She's an expert DBT therapist and a senior and expert trainer in DBT. She's also an instructor in mindfulness, and uh, she runs retreats in mindfulness. She also just recently published a book um, on using mindfulness uh, with powerful, uh, intense negative emotions, uh, which is a really good book. Um, so I recommend it. Her name is Cedar Coons, K O O N S, and she has a website which is uh, cedarcoons.com. Cedar's going to come on because uh, she, uh, I started reading her blog about uh, her experience starting uh, two years ago. Um, her sister uh, died by suicide and uh, two years ago. And, of course, for Cedar, it's been a, an earth-shattering and transforming event for her and her family. And she has been through quite a process, and she's done a lot of work on it and is you know used mindfulness skills and other things. And um, so she's going to come on for those two meetings and talk about that. I'm going to interview her about that um and uh try to learn things and i think this will be of special interest to people who've had a suicide take place in their family but i think it'll be of interest to other people as well Um, so those things having been said i'm going to tell you what i'm doing today and it's going to be a little different than what i've been doing and a little different than my usual uh style um My usual style, which has been more prevalent the last two times, is where I try to talk about something in somewhat more depth with a lot of personal uh, examples or clinical examples or examples of friends or just stories uh, associated to try to elaborate on something. And today it's going to be a little different. I want to stick with um, going over um, lessons that one can learn from the skills of mindfulness as taught in DBT which are really six skills and a concept called wise mind, but the six skills and wise mind are really derived from uh, meditative or mindfulness meditative practices, uh, spiritual practices, secular practices, um, and they uh, exist in a lot of other uh, locations as well, other than particular Uh, meditation practices, but they are out there in the world, and they are really, really helpful. And what Marsha Linehan has done in the way she did it with DBT is she turned them into six um, describable, bite-sized, usable skills that are very practical, each of which has a different flavor, a different maneuver for coping with uh, reality, including the reality of painful experience and the reality of emotions. Uh, and all kinds of realities. So I, I consider these to be very core skills. They're called the core mindfulness skills within DBT. They're at the core of the other skills in DBT. And if you don't know DBT, uh, those are, you know, the, the, the skills for regulating emotions, the skills for uh, tolerating distress, and the skills for being more effective interpersonally. Um, but these are these six skills and concepts that are at the core of all of that to such a degree that you know, I kind of think that to me they're uh, like if you, um, you know, my kids did grow up learning to play hockey, and watching them, it's, it's a little bit like if you became a hockey player, um, you need to really be good at skating. It's a core skill of playing hockey. And once you've learned it, you know, you, you're doing all these other things. But, you know, if you don't have good skating skills, it impairs everything. Uh, It just holds you back. So I think mindfulness skills, when it comes to coping effectively with all kinds of situations in life, they really are just core skills in life and and for regulating emotions and and being effective with people. So I want to go over those six skills, but I want to go over them in a way that's really like bite-sized. It's more focused. It's more compact. I'm going to move from one thing to another to another in such a way that my guess is that if some of you find this useful, you may want to listen to this more than once because I'm going to go through some things quickly. If you're if you're a DBT practitioner or you've studied these things a lot, it'll all kind of just come right. It'll just sound familiar to you, and maybe you'll learn something from it. Um, but I think especially anybody else, uh, there's going to be a lot covered here. Um, I may or may not get to all of it, but I do have the intention to get to nine con- to nine. Um, what would you call it? Nine elements that I want to cover. Um, Six of them are these six skills. One of them is what is wise mind, and what, why do we want to get into it to be effective and to cope with emotions? And the uh, and then I want to talk about emo- I want to talk about kind of the anatomy of emotions, how emotions work. Because if you're trying to apply these skills to helping yourself regulate emotions, um, you you want to have something that's more um, has more multi-layered component understanding of emotions rather than a global one and uh, and finally, I want to talk some about emptiness as a painful personal experience for people and how these some of these skills might be useful for that. so that's that's where we're going with this it's a, it's a, an agenda based podcast today. I'm going to start with emotions um, and put them right up front and then some about emptiness. Um, and here's what I want to say. You want to you wanna have an anatomy of how an emotion works, and it isn't just an, an anatomy. It doesn't just sit still. It's how an emotion flows. What are the ingredients of an emotion? Because any one of them could be subject to, be, to, being, uh, to where you would apply certain mindfulness skills to that aspect of an emotion. An emotion has a, a number of different components. It, it's laid out in a variety of research Paradigms and also the the part that and how it's uh, incorporated into DBT um, and what we use as the model. So, here's the idea of emotions. Uh, First of all, I want to say about them um, there's ongoing research about emotions and the understanding of emotions, even the basic concept has changed some, but and is in question, and people are debating these things. But I do think certain and there's certain things that are definitely the case. Emotions can be pleasant or they can be unpleasant. Um, That seems to be uh, cross-culturally universal. There are unpleasant and there are pleasant emotions in the world. People recognize them. People identify them in their own lives in different cultures. Uh, whereas, to say that there's anger everywhere, fear everywhere, sadness everywhere, and that these are templates that are within the brain of all people, there's a lot of question about that, and there's a lot of reason to question that in research. So, let's just say that there are these very pleasant emotions, and there are unpleasant, and then there's another, another dimension that seems to be there, which is there, there's high arousal emotions, and there's low arousal emotions, so that you have high... Uh, unpleasant emotions Uh, some of them you know that we are familiar with anger or uh, sadness uh, sometimes or um, fear or shame or disgust or envy or jealousy Um, and there's low arousal versions of those and we're especially interested uh, in DBT and I think most of us are probably interested in uh, what what do we do about the high intensity um, unpleasant emotions, but I think that the same concepts can be applied to the others. So having said that, here's the anatomy or the flow of an emotion. Um, so f- try to picture this. Uh, I don't have a picture being on a, on, a, on the uh, podcast, but I'm going to try to draw a picture for you, so to speak. First, there's this, whatever sets off the emotion. So um, you know, you, let's say something Something sets off the emotion. There's different words for it, such as prompting, event in DBT, but there's trigger, there's stimulus, there's cue, there's a variety of words. So something sets off the, the body, the brain, the nervous system, the mind into a, a series of steps that happen almost instantaneously. Um, but there's some structure to them. Let's take an example I was thinking of uh, when I was thinking about this. Um, let's say because this happened to myself and my wife one time a long time ago and it was uh, it was it triggered emotions as as you'll hear we were getting ready to adopt a uh, baby and uh, we had gone through a process of many months of interacting with a birth mother from a different state and it looked like everything was going to work and we were quite uh, into it and ready for it and and then uh, shortly before the birth, uh, we got a call from the lawyer that said the birth mother had changed her mind. And that was all we were told and that it was off. Um, and it just was devastating at the time. I mean, and, and so let's just track that because, look, I'm far enough away from it now that though I remember the pain of it, I'm not in the pain of it anymore. Um, so, there were, uh, so what are the first things that happen? Well, it triggers a physiological response, so there's part of an emotion is in the element of physiological responses, whether it's your blood pressure system, your vascular system, your lungs, your skin, your, uh, the whole body, I mean, any, any, any part of the body that's affected by an emotion and you have a physiology, uh, physiological response that gets going. Um, This can include hormonal responses, which then take longer to settle down, and there's immediate sympathetic nervous system responses that can come and go fairly quickly. Um, So you've got that going on. Then you've got also sensations of that, sensations so that you have the capacity to sense when things change in your body. So you have a feeling, and the feeling isn't just a general feeling. You have specific sensations in various parts of the body, that for a given person might be different for different emotions. And this turns out to be really, these are important things when it comes to using mindfulness practices. Um, you t- typically have urges that are associated with those sensations and that, that physiology. There's usually an, an urge to do something. And uh, the emotion is pushing you in a direction. Emotions are filled with information. Emotions make predictions. You know, when you have fear, it's making a prediction that there's a threat coming at you, and you will have an urge to avoid that threat one way or another, depending what the kind of threat is. Then there are thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts might come first, they might come second, but as part of the mixture of what goes on is there will be thoughts. There will be immediate interpretations of what's going on, and those interpretations now can drive further physiology. They can drive further sensations. They can drive urges further. And finally, you have a sense of an emotion. In other words, you, you kind of label it yourself based on your own history. You might say, Oh, I'm having the emotion of, uh, of disappointment. I'm having the emotion of anger. I'm having, I mean, the ones that my wife and I had, or at least that I had that I was remembering, as uh, that, uh, profoundly disappointed, um, profoundly sad, uh, including tearful, uh, angry. Uh, that this could happen at the last minute, it was not not that that 's reasonable or anything, but I mean it 's understandable, but um, uh, ashamed that I was having that bigger response to all of that, all of this happened really immediately. I had thoughts uh, how could she how could she do this at the last minute and 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 how what happened? It was such a mystery because we thought we had a lot of communication and it thought it was real clear and and then, then the thought, this is never going to work out. You know, We had our hearts on this, and this was going to work. It took a lot of months. It took a lot of preparation. Now it's, it's uh, not, not going to work. Um, I'll never get to see this child or any child. And so these thoughts immediately trigger other emotions, um, but these thoughts kind of come immediately, and they, 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 they can multiply. Um, and, then, um, and, and also the urge to give up the urge to say you know screw this uh this is not the way to go we're not going to do this we've had enough of this um and then the uh, sort of experience physiologically and, and in sensations of be feeling like dead feeling like just that we had been shot down and i felt deflated i felt withdrawn i thought uh I don't want to go anywhere, I don't want to do anything. It was just sort of like a lead balloon inside. It was really a bad feeling and one that just sort of stopped me in my tracks. So all of that goes on. So each of these components is part of the anatomy of one emotional response, and each of these has the potential of changing all of the others. Now, all of this is maybe you might say under the category of uh, the experience mind and body that was, expir- that was evoked by the prompting event. And then comes uh, the next part, which is also almost immediate usually, which is the expression. There's experience and then there's expression and the expression takes the form of action. In some cases, it can take the form of words, uh, of facial expressions and of uh, body uh, language, body expression. So in my case, it included crying uh, withdrawing in terms of action um, it included uh, words uh, damn it uh, how could she do this uh, what are we expecting uh, this will never work and those kind of words and, and I'm really feeling uh, you know my, my body language would have included slumping uh, I think and just looking defeated um, in a certain way and uh, pounding my fist a little bit and just you know so all of that happens and it happens you know And these are the kind of things that the way Linehan has talked about emotions is that one way to understand emotions makes you realize that in certain way, emotions love themselves and they they can keep themselves going because you keep doing things, you keep saying things, you keep thinking things, you keep feeling things, each of which is now a trigger for the whole thing to keep going. So it's, it, 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 something like this can go on and on and on and on, and it can dominate your life. Uh, it can, you can become consumed, and you have many choices of how to, uh, how to cope with it, and you have ones that are automatic because you learned them as a child, and then you have other possibilities that you could learn to make things different. So this is the idea of laying out the anatomy. So just picture that you've got the prompting event, you've got the box uh, which has uh, various kinds of experiencing, and then you've got various kinds of expression, and then you you know you're done. Then you move out of that, um, but you might not move out of that. You might keep recycling if you draw this as a graph or a, a chart. Uh, you can draw arrows that keep you recycling back into the same things over and over again. And the question becomes for people who get stuck, whether it's anxiety or despair, or rumination, depression, get stuck in it, and then it's sort of like, oh, my God, how am I ever going to get out of this? And th- th- that's the bad news. And the good news is that actually there are ways to get out of it in most cases, um, but it sometimes requires knowing the anatomy of the emotions and knowing how you could intervene Uh, Down in part of the anatomy. You can't just do surgery on the whole emotion, um, so to speak. So, um, let's see. I want to say, I'm following notes here. Um, So, let me say next. We don't usually experience our emotions in the way I just described it, as we know. I mean, the amount of time it took for me to explain that, uh, you could have had 30 emotions. Um, emotions happen and we experience them however we experience them which is a complex product of our life history uh, our biology of how we've been taught to experience our emotions how we've been taught to respond to them what we've seen other people do so it's very pretty complicated but generally we we experience an emotion not as a series of components but instead as a gob a big gob, just sort of like a substance almost. A wave is another metaphor, a lump, and it's an event. And we just say, oh my God, I'm just so pissed off or I'm so disappointed. And that word captures not every, it doesn't capture everything because everything is boiled down into these components. If you go microscopically, there's a lot in there that are caught as one wave. And as long as we think of them as a lump as a wave, as a gob, as something that inhabited ourselves for a brief time and took us over and consumed us or something, it's very hard to change them. Uh, That's just not a fine-tuned enough understanding of them to do something about it. So we experience them as in us, and things can get better, things can get worse, it can last longer, it can last shorter, um, and and it depends on all these different things. And we hope it will go away. Um, and if it doesn't, we start to get uh, new emotions such as despair uh, or hopelessness. Um, so what I want to do next, and I'm not sure some of you would have heard this, even people in DBT, because I just was thinking about this leading up to this podcast, that I want to suggest that out of all the you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of ways that you can respond to your emotion when it inhabits you, um, I'm going to break that down into three, three types, three, I don't know what to call them, three groups, three categories, three levels, uh, three ways globally to respond to being invaded, you might say, or experiencing or co-constructing, because we also contribute ourselves to our own emotions. Uh, what, do we, what can we do? And I, I'll just say, um, the, I'll say in brief terms, and then I'll lay it out a little more, is one thing we can do is we can try to discharge the emotion, we can attack, uh, we can try to uh, get the emotion out of us, we can try to shut it down, we can try to consume, our, consume something that gets rid of it, we can move away from it, and we could, we could drink, etc. So there's one, just a whole set of responses that are probably the least helpful of all of them and that are the, the most global and probably can turn into the most damaging, which is really like seeing the whole emotion as a big lump and you're trying to uh, get away from it, get rid of it, eject it, or something like that. Then there's another set of things you can do that I would say you come to realize that you're having a a bad experience, a bad emotion, a negative emotion, an unpleasant emotion of some kind, and it's in you, and it's there, and it isn't going away right away, and you don't quite see what to do, but actually you do something to take, take the edge off. you you try to do something to ratchet it down to a tolerable level or just take the edge off it or move a little bit away from it, but not by ejecting it, discharging it, or destroying something for it. Instead, um, as I'll get to you, there are various skillful things you can do. And so I'd call this in the middle. There's this what you can do in DBT terms for those on doing DBT. This is where you'd start to use a distress tolerance skills of accepting the reality of the emotion that won't go away right now accepting the reality that you don't have a solution at the moment, but then realizing there's lots of things you can do to try to take the edge off. Um, And then the last one would be leaning into the emotion, that you relate to the emotion by staring it in the face, so to speak, and being there with it and hanging out with it and feeling it and then uh, having various things you can do to try to uh, make that continue to happen. So now let me just say those three things, the, the, the one I think you got the picture, I'll just say a little more about them. The first one is getting rid of it. First one is we do things to get rid of it and this almost inevitably in the long run turns out to be a problem because we don't really get rid of it. And also we're treating it as a global entity when it's actually not and we're probably treating it in a way, that interpreting it as if it's something other than what it actually is. We misunderstand a lot of the time our own emotions and those of others. So uh, you, we're blocking it, burying it, denying it, uh, pretending it doesn't exist, uh, acting impulsively to, uh, to run away from it, so to speak, or, and or judging or blaming ourselves or other people or getting defensive. So there's all of those. Now the next one, the hanging in there ones with emotions but with high distress, you're addressing not the emotion as directly, but you're addressing the distress that's accompanying the emotion. And you, uh, with this one, you kind of accept emotions and you use these skills for surviving through the emotion, and it helps you get through it. Uh, it might not solve anything in the long run there, and it might not change how you experience emotions in the future, but it gets you through more safely than uh, the category number one. This does include the use of mindfulness, because you have to become mindful of the fact that you have an emotion that's painful and it's not going away. And then, you, then once you're mindful of that, you realize, OK, maybe I have some choices here to take the edge off. And then there's a third one, the one's the leaning in, looking into it, exposing yourself to it, going through it. I'm just putting different terms to, it, to this. You're holding it. I mean, this is a Thich Nhat Han metaphor where you have, let's say, intense anger. Or some other intense emotion and you um, hold it in you like like as if it's a crying baby and uh, you're holding the crying baby within yourself the angry baby the crying baby the ashamed baby. you're you're holding that in a comforting way and hoping it'll settle down and see if you can figure out then what to do about it maybe maybe you don't know why the baby's crying and maybe you don't know why you're having some of the feelings you have or another one, another metaphor I like that he used was uh, baking it like a potato, saying it takes 20 minutes to bake a potato. Um, so uh, he says, so don't assume it will work right away. You hold it mindfully for 20 minutes uh, and keep focusing on it, investigating it. You say yes to having it in you rather than no. Um, and you let it, in a way, what I, how I think of this is you hold it enough whatever it takes to do that, and it's different for different people, to allow it to break down into its um, more primary components, its ingredients, the ingredients of the thoughts that go into it, the physiological reactions, the sensations, the urges, you know, the sense of it, the various ways to express yourself with it, that those are all sort of um, primary components. And then we lump them together and we call them an emotion. Is much more helpful to start to break it down into its ingredients but we usually can't do that until it settles down some and then we start to settle down and say oh yeah god I really am angry and uh, and now I realize why I'm really angry when that person was talking to me they really didn't take my point of view seriously at all not only that I, I felt really dissed in that conversation and and you didn't quite realize that, and, or maybe you were ashamed to realize that, but, 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 and then you come up and realize, you know, yeah, I am angry, and there's a reason for it, and let me think more about that, and why did that make me so angry, and why did that person say that? And eventually that might prepare you to, to tolerate that emotion, to break it down, and actually move on from it, but also it might allow you to then more effectively go have a conversation with that person who hurt your feelings. Um, I want to say one more thing in this category, and I already can see with the time. I knew this would happen because I'm so bad at this, trying to cram a lot in fast. Um, is uh, I want to uh, say that within this category of trying to cope, face, hold, deal with, hang out with, emotions, and process them and get them down to their primary ingredients, there's a certain four-step uh, acronym that many of you have probably heard. Um, I've heard it in a number of different places, and it's always slightly different what the acronym means, but it's the same acronym, interestingly. Um, and I find it very useful. I've used it myself. I've used it with, with people I work with. Um, so the, the, the acronym is to the word RAIN, R-A-I-N. And the first step is you get, let's say you get a really painful emotion in you or, or a painful sense of emptiness. So the R is to recognize it. Obviously, this is something with mindfulness, with mindful awareness. You just observe it. You just notice, ah, oh, this is painful. Uh, you might also say it, so it might include describing it in a specific way. So, But you begin by recognizing that it is, it is in you, and you might say to yourself, you know, that intense anger is in me, or... I am filled with a disappo- feeling of disappointment, and so you you acknowledge it as a first step. And then the next one is A, the letter A, and this A, I've heard it used uh, to mean different words, but the one I like best is allow. You allow it. You allow it to be there. Uh, if you have any temptations to get rid of it, to discharge it, to fight against it, to... Uh, Blame other people for it. Uh, No, you just allow it. It's in you, okay? It's just in you. It's not forever. That's always hard to remember at that time because you think it might be or you don't even care about that. But it's sort of like allow it to be. Recognize that it's in you. Now allow it to be there. Uh, That means allow it to take shape within you over time. The I stands for investigate it. This is like holding the crying baby, and as it starts to settle down and there's a little bit less crying, you can start to investigate what's going on here. What's going on with this emotion that I have? What's it made up of? Where is it in my body? God, I realize all of a sudden now that I'm thinking about it, my whole abdomen feels tense. I just feel I'm very tight. I didn't even realize that. That's part of the whole thing. I'm so tense I'm going to blow up. And uh, you might feel it in your face or in your neck or something like that, or you might notice the thoughts that are going with it, which are really pounding you. And um, so once you investigate it, it starts to soften and break down, and this is what uh, what you hope would happen if you're going to uh, lean in to emotions. And then the final one, the N, is a longer term, but it's non-identification. And the idea of non-identification is that you notice that one of the things that does you in, one of the things that perpetuates emotions and one of the things that makes them worse than they might otherwise be is when you identify with them. You might identify with the thoughts rather than saying, I'm having thoughts that will never get a baby. You realize, you know, you you realize I'm having thoughts will never have a baby, but you don't have to identify with that, meaning it's reality. I, I'm never going to have a baby. No, it's a thought. It's passing through you. It's in you. You you have sensations that are in you, and they are going to transform. They never, ever, ever stay forever. Um, so things are going to change, and you want, try not to identify with the state you're in. And therefore, one of the most important things about observing happens, which I emphasized in previous podcasts, and I'm going to emphasize again in a minute which is one of the most powerful things that happens by just observing what is actually there. What is specifically there is that you divide yourself into being an observer and there being the observed. And that is a fundamental transformation to fundamation. Um, and uh, where you are that you don't necessarily even realize it, but you have actually turned yourself into an observer and the observed. And there are characteristics of the observed once you do that, which is observed things come and go. Observed things are not necessarily real things that are going to endure and that you need to attach to. Um, They're like clouds that go through the sky. But then there is the observer, which is a more enduring person, a more enduring identity. You observe this, you observe that, you observe everything. And therefore, you have already begun to create the possibility of stabilizing yourself more. As soon as you, whether you start to observe, you know, the details of the sensations of your breath or the details of the sensations of the emotion that you're having, or the details of the thoughts that are passing through your mind, you're observing and you're creating the possibility of making things better. So recognize to recognize that something's in you, to allow it to be, to investigate it and let it soften and break down, and to not identify with the ingredients or with the thing as a whole so that you can sort of see, all right, this is something. And then it opens up possibilities like options, like what am I going to do? What about emptiness? Because I want to say something about emptiness, and then I'm going to move into whatever skills I can cover. So what about emptiness? Um, you know, I've thought a lot about emptiness because I think I've had a lot of it, and I've also had patients who had a lot of it, and and you can't just – Compare all emptinesses. Uh, Some emptinesses that people have are are awful and devastating and just you'd never want to be there for five seconds. Um, They're just achy and you're isolated and you feel there's no purpose in any one thing you do. There's no meaning in any one thing you do. Meaning, if it was ever there, has broken down. As a result, there's no motivation You don't want to get out of bed. And it isn't necessarily the same as depression, but it certainly can be part of depression. And there can be empty states within depression, and there can be emptiness without depression. Uh, But it looks like depression. And it's a profound state of mind that's extremely uncomfortable, where you're basically living with the sense every second what is the point? What is the point? And, uh, and you're kind of creating, I mean, not, you're doing, certainly not doing this on purpose, but there, when, when emptiness goes on, I'd say something about the anatomy of emptiness. Um, you probably could formulate it very much like I did with emotions, but uh, the way I formulate it myself for myself and for other people I've worked with is, you know, you st- you have an em- let's say you have an empty feeling, a feeling of emptiness, some, including some of the uh, qualities I just described. Um, and then from that quali- feeling of emptiness, there's a loss of motivation. There's just a lack of motivation. There's what's the point? Why do things? Um, and so some people who feel really empty, for a while they can keep themselves doing things automatically or like, by, like a robot, but then, then, they, then they usually grind to a halt. There's a loss of motivation, and with the loss of motivation, there's a lack of activity there's a lack of getting yourself out into the world, and I don't mean in a big way, but even down the street, even around the block, even to the grocery store, even to your job, even to whatever it is. So you basically start living within the same trough. You go around and around. There's a lack of activity after there's a loss of motivation. And when you have a lack of activity, you, know you, ha- you start having minimal, less and less exposure to the world, to anything novel You know, and uh, the research that's gone on in uh, the brain, you know, one of the interesting things that's come up, we used to think that the uh, amygdala, for instance, very important structure in the brain and the emotion regulation, you know, we've, we've thought in the past that it's specifically related to sort of the sympathetic nervous system and fear, and it's the activator of emergency emotional responses. It turns out that's not entirely the right story about the amygdala. But one thing that is pretty clearly consistently found about the amygdala is it responds to novelty and so when you encounter novelty different experience things you haven't seen things you haven't done people you haven't met music you haven't listened to novelty can trigger the amygdala which then does activate a lot of things so if you have set up your life where you feel empty you're not motivated you have a lack of activity and no novelty is coming in anymore so there's nothing to really trigger your amygdala or your nervous system, uh, and you just continue to cycle through this. You have a lack of reward. I mean, one of, the, one of the treatments of depression that has the most evidence for it, for instance, is behavioral activation. And the basic idea of behavioral activation is get people behaviorally activated who are depressed, even if they don't feel like it. Why? Um, in order to have them experience different things out there where they have a chance of getting reinforced. Because if you're not doing something anymore outside your own usual little pathway, you have a lack of any incoming reward, which uh, isn't the only thing that perpetuates depression, but it's important. And with the lack of reward, you continue to have an empty feeling, and you go around and around this kind of like cycle of emptiness, and, and then it grows into a cycle of emptiness and despair and hopelessness. And so you know, mindfulness can be brought to bear on this. Uh, I think it's really hard. Um, I I had the experience of it in in a way that isn't at the same level as some of what I'm talking about. But, but, you know, you guys are all people. <laughs> you have had these things. I'm not alone in this. I'm counting on that so that I'm, don't freak anybody out too much. But you know, in the past two or three weeks, I, I was after doing teaching um, an intensive uh, DBT training in Italy, um, and then one of my sons is traveling in Europe with a backpack, and he met up with me, and then my other son and wife came there. And we spent the Christmas holidays, the generally the you know two weeks of the holiday season, in Italy in three places. You think, oh, my God, how fabulous. And it is. It was just, you know, I had the best pizza I've ever, ever even imagined in uh, Naples. And if you're ever going to go to Italy uh, and you want to get the best pizza ever, ask me, and I'll tell you which exact pizzeria to go to. Uh, it's unbelievable. But anyway, there were these high points, and there were high points as a family there were, of course, low points as a family. These things always happen. But, you know, what happened is I did a lot of walking around when other people didn't necessarily want to be walking where I was walking. And as I walked around, I was experiencing, and I, did, I have this happen to me sometimes on vacations or if I'm out of my usual structure for a few days. You know, I'm not working. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And it's sort of like, and I love that because I love the novelty that comes with it. But also... I do start to lose, I go through a period where I feel a sort of sense of existential angst to despair, Like, and I start feeling like, what is the point of anything? And I feel like, why am I even doing this? Or why? And I'll just sit down somewhere and, and uh, look at people go by, and I just feel empty inside, achy inside, and I'll just go through that for a while, and sometimes quite a while, and, and I start to th- then I start to have reactions to the fact that I feel empty, because then I think, oh, my God, what is wrong with you, Charlie? You're in Italy, for Christ's sake. I mean, this is such a privilege, and you're feeling empty? What's the big problem? And then, of course, you complicate yourself. You're making yourself suffer beyond suffering. It's just one thing to feel empty, and you don't have a ton of control over that when it happens. I mean, some of you may have it and some of you may not, but, but I've had it in my life. And and then it's sort of like, what do you do with that? And I decided, you know, I'm walking around. I decided, you know what, Charlie, observe it. Just observe it. Just realize, yeah, you have emptiness in you, the feeling of emptiness, rather than judging it, rather than deciding where it came from, rather than deciding whether I should have it. just, yes, this is this moment. Here and now, right now, I am feeling empty. Emptiness is within me. And that already changed the response that my response to it was like, okay, it it didn't do much for it. It still, I still felt empty, but I felt like it almost circumscribed it. And then I used describe. So right now I'm sort of doing a preliminary of the six skills. So then I used describe, which is then I start describing, well, what is this feeling? What is this? And I felt like there was a kind of a deadness inside my chest. And this kind of like hollow feeling and this kind of feeling of, of looking around and thinking there's no place in the world for me, which is kind of a thought more than a sensation, of course. And I just felt like I was a little robot-like walking around and a little bit not fully in touch with my body. And as I went through this, I started to describe this to myself. And then when you describe, you have to watch out to not get into judgments, not get into assumptions, but just say exactly with spare language what is about your physiology, about your feelings, about your your state of mind, about your thoughts. Just notice. Just notice. And now just describe. You know, the first DBT mindfulness skill is observe, and it is to just... Notice, and that's all you do. As soon as you go on and put words on it, you're no longer in the world of observe. You might still be observing, but you now have used the skill of describe, which, as I said last time, is a kind of more active skill. It's, it's not just receptive. You're actually acting upon what you have observed. So now I'm observing, and now I'm describing this empty feeling inside me, and the thoughts that go with it, and the prediction of the future that goes with it and then i start to realize okay all of this comes and all of this eventually goes but i don't know how it goes it's like when you have the hiccups and you don't know how you're going to get rid of them but you, wake, then you realize at a later point in time, gee, I don't have the hiccups anymore. I don't know, don't know where they went. I don't know how I got rid of them. I don't think it was that person, my brother, who deliberately scared me because he was looking for an opportunity to do that and call it therapeutic. And so he did that. But no, it's sort of like, I don't know where these things are. Emptiness is here. It's like a fog settled in this morning. Here we are in London. A fog came in. And guess what? It's going to go out later. Um, If you really watch things long enough, and if you stick to your observer self, you realize things come and go. And you describe it, which circumscribes it further, it grounds it in a certain reality, a factual reality. It takes it out of the realm of letting yourself drift into assumptions, judgments, and all kinds of criticisms or interpretations. But just stay with what is. And then you've got the skill of participate. Now, participate is interesting when it comes to emptiness. Because the skill of participate is different than those first two, observing and describing. In that, it's the skill of letting yourself completely immerse yourself in something. It's a skill of go all the way. Get into it. Don't settle for 90%. Um, If you're going to uh, to, uh, sing, sing your heart out. If you're going to cry, let yourself cry. Cry it out. You know, if you have feelings of inhibition, gee, I shouldn't be singing, I have a terrible voice, I don't want to sing, I don't want to bother anybody, I don't want to bother myself, oh my God, or or crying or laughing too much or you're talking too much. You know, yeah, maybe there are social issues there, but actually the skill of participate is to just let yourself go into it and notice that you have inhibitions, you have ruminations, You have these restrictive feelings that are there from training, and you kind of just let them a little bit break down and dissolve, and you just do it. Or as, as my my best buddy in the past, before she passed away in 2003, my Cindy Sanderson, my co-teacher in DBT um, and best friend, would say, you know, her favorite strategy in training people was, you know. just fuck it. You know, just let it go. Just do it. Just if you're on the fence about try trying something and you're just scared it's not going to go well, you know, just do it. Just go ahead and there and and do it and when you do it, don't do it halfway. Like do it, you know? And someone might look at you and say, "Oh my god, that doesn't seem like her. That doesn't seem like him." But you know, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it in order to experience freedom and a new relationship to the world and a new relationship to yourself and in particular with the problem of emptiness. You know, so what would happen? I started to think, okay, I, I could participate. Well what's participate? you don't want to participate in emptiness. That'll just participate yourself to death if you think of it that way. No. You you need to kind of look around in your experience in the environment in the world around you in the people around you and say you know let me let me get into this and I started to get into and this really got me this really helped with the emptiness I said you know i had been teaching myself Italian for some time actually to the point that in my workshops I begin them in a teaching in Italian and then I fairly quickly have to break off into English but um, I'm getting a little further and so I'm but I'm still shy to interact with people Italian I just decided you know I'm going to go start talking to people in Italian and it happened to be you know this was uh, which day was it Christmas Eve day which is a huge day there um, bigger than Christmas and uh, the this one street Toledo Street in Naples was flooded with people it was like 5th Avenue in New York City and every, everybody's going up and down and looking and buying last minute presents and eating and having a good time and music's playing and I decided you know what I'm just going to go talk I'm going to go think of, who can I talk to? And I decided, okay, I'll go get a piece of pizza from that person there, and I'll do it entirely in Italian. And once I was into that, I couldn't even think about emptiness. I got myself into where I think I triggered my amygdala, so to speak, I use that as a metaphor more than real anatomy, but I got something going because I just decided I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to make a fool of myself. You know, I'm going to go speak Italian to somebody who I'm never going to see again. Uh, but they 're going to who know how and actually what 's good about Italians is that they they're usually more receptive and warm and welcoming about you trying and and, and screwing up their language than if you go to Paris and try to do it in French um, and other, and some other places that where they don 't have the patience for you, but you know Italians seem to have all the time in the world to hear you make a fool of yourself and then and then try to make you feel better so. It was a good place to do that. But participate is to jump into something all the way, notice you have inhibitions, overcome them. There's something about that process that I don't think we understand in neurophysiology well enough yet, but, it, but there's something that's liberating and something that is focusing about that. It's a mindfulness skill To do that in something and it could be almost any activity in life and so it helps with emptiness if you can get yourself to do it the problem with emptiness is that it's the last thing you want to do when you're feeling that way you're already feeling just so inward and withdrawn I I mean to try to get somebody to do that you know you couldn't get them somebody has to be ready to try something and it might be something much smaller something much different so there's participate then there is non-judgmental is the fourth skill, and um, applying that to emptiness. So non-judgmental is where your relationship to emptiness, the thing, you're, it isn't like you can necessarily dictate the removal of emptiness. You're actually coping with emptiness by being aware of it, by describing it, by letting yourself participate in something that might you know move you in a different direction. And non-judgmental as a skill doesn't mean you stamp out your judgments, but you you're paying attention to your judgments about your emptiness. Right? This is all about what is your relationship to emptiness? What is your relationship to shame or anger or fear? It isn't how am I going to get rid of this? This is different approach there are approaches like that but this approach of mindfulness is no how do I hang out with emptiness how do I hang out with any of these things so one of the things you notice when you hang out with emptiness and it's really painful is you start to notice that embedded within the emptiness syndrome are your judgments about your emptiness that help to perpetuate it that help to keep you from doing anything they immobilize you 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 have you you start thinking. Not only do I feel empty inside, which is a thing in and of itself, but I'm also a fucking idiot for being like this. Other people aren't like this. Nobody's like this. Guess what? Lots of people are like this. They to more or less degree. But you never. This is one of those things in life. Nobody goes and says, "Hey, let's talk about emptiness and how we all feel empty." I mean, it just never happens. It'd probably be very therapeutic if we could do that. But no. it's so you you judge yourself. And you judge other people for judging you, or at least imagining that they're judging you. So you get caught in a cycle of judgments, and that is, is really, like, just sort of nails you to the door. It's just, it's over. It's like you're not only empty, but you're bad. You're deficient. You know, a competent person wouldn't feel emptiness. Um, so you're incompetent. So all of this gets going. So what, what non-judgmental really means, though, is just to notice the judgments. And secondly, to notice that they are judgments, so if you have anger, and then you notice you have judgments about anger, which actually paradoxically can increase your anger. but you have judgments about anger, like you shouldn't be angry, that shouldn't make you angry, you shouldn't be you shouldn't have a loud voice when you 're angry, and you shouldn't make it apparent to people that you're angry, and all of these things so it isn't just emptiness but every state that we might talk about in this vein you get judgments packed in and the judgments are part of the self-perpetuating cycle of these things so if you can start to notice what are your judgments about being empty what are your thoughts about being empty feeling empty you know what are those sensations but now what are your thoughts about it because if you can identify those and realize and say to yourself, now you can observe your judgments. Go back and use those skills again. Observe your judgments. Now you can describe your judgments. Gee, I'm having the judgment that I'm incompetent because I feel empty. Now just saying that, which is a fact, you're disc- I mean you're the only one who could say it because you're the only one who observed it. No one else can observe that inside you. But if you say that, I'm having the thought that I'm incompetent because I feel empty, that puts it on the table in a way that you now, your mind can say, really? God, Hmm. I guess that makes me incompetent. Well, when you state it, it's it sort of uh, takes away some of the uh, aura around it that's so horrible. It's sort of like, I mean, it's bad enough to feel that way, but to state it now, And then you get a third thing. So thing one is observe it. Second thing is describe your judgment. And the third thing is to notice that your judgment is not a fact. Almost say that to yourself. It probably should be built in that way. Like, you know what? It's a judgment. Judgment is a judgment. What's a judgment? A judgment is a set of brain firings in a certain part of the brain. A judgment is a, a passing phenomenon in the brain. For some people get stuck there. But it gets stuck because it is refueled a thousand times, and now you're stuck with a chronic judgment, and it's going to be hard to get out of it, but still the way to get out of it is to be observing it, describing it, raising questions about it, investigating it. You can apply RAIN to your judgments. You recognize a judgment. You allow the judgment. You don't push it away. You investigate the judgment you wonder about the judgment and you try to notice that to not identify non-identification with the judgment so that comes back again so that's non-judgmental then there's another skill which is one mindfully and one mindfully is now a different flavor all these are different flavors they add up together to a kind of mindfulness package and so to be one mindful is really just to allow yourself the time and space to actually attend to one thing at a time. It is to have dinner without your cell phone on the table. It is to be in a meeting without reading a newspaper, or it's reading a newspaper without trying to have a conversation at the same time, in some cases. Uh, These might be trivial examples. It depends on your life, what, what your life is made up of. But it's kind of one, one mindfully is, as Thich Nhat Hanh described to Marshall Linehan, has quoted him many times of saying, you know, there are two ways to do the dishes. There's doing the dishes in order to get clean dishes, which doesn't require mindfulness at all. You just sort of automatically do the dishes and you don't, might not even know you did all the dishes and they're done. And then there is doing the dishes to do the dishes, where each dish matters, each, each stroke of each dish matters. And you're just doing it one step at a time. And by doing it that way, your mind is carried into the performance of just washing a dish, just eating what you're eating, just taking a walk, or just looking at a tree, playing with your dog and doing nothing else. It is one mindful because you're giving it enough space, enough time, and enough focus, that that's what you're doing. And there's something about that that helps slow things down, settle things down. And that includes with emotions. So that if you are caught up in emotions, frustration about them, rumination about them, you know to just stop and start doing one thing at a time and that includes some of the steps that I've been describing during this podcast you know observing describing participating doing something like those things and then and then these lay the groundwork for other skills but it's kind of like just to take and of course this is what's tough about this for our society and certainly for me Though so I'm better than I was, but I'm far from where I often think I should be about this or where, where, where it would be most, the consequences would be the best. Which is, you know, uh, somebody stood up at the retreat I went to with Thich Nhat Hanh when he allowed questions and said, gee, I need to, this is so helpful for me to be just doing this, like all week like this. But you know I have a really busy life and I'm I'm worried when I get back how do I build this into my life you know when I have so many things to do. Ticknot Han said to him how many projects would you if you break your life down into the number of different things you do how many projects would you say you have? The guy said, "Oh my god, I can't even I could not be hard to count. I don't know. Probably between 20 and 25 things I keep attending to." And Thich Nhat Han said, "Well, why don't you bring that down to three and i was like oh my god (laughs) there's a pretty strong statement you could tell this was you could tell the kind of life this guy had three and then i remembered that when i was much younger you know all of us were smarter when we were about 21 years old i look back and think god if i could have acted on all the wisdom i had then um you know, it actually wouldn't have worked out all that great, but there were certain things, like I remember thinking at a certain point in my life in my 20s, you know, I am happiest when I just have three things to do uh, on, during the week or during a day, and uh, and there's certain kind of things. And, and then you, you realize, well, that's because you're able to be one-mindful you just do them. You're not cramming in so much. So that's one, mindfulness. It's also helpful with emotion regulation, and it's already 5 o'clock Eastern time. I'm just going to have to stop, but I'll just say, say the last skill uh, of the core skill, core mindfulness skills, is to be effective. And to be effective is kind of a Nike skill, except Nike really doesn't understand it, but it's uh, do it. Just do it. Just do what works. Just do what it takes which means align yourself with your values. Align yourself with the rules of the universe and how things work. Align yourself with getting something done that's in line with those values and that pays attention to the rules of the universe and how things work, and just do it. Rather than get your trying to do several agendas at once, trying to solve an emotional problem while you're doing a practical thing, no, just do the practical thing. Leave the emotion thing separate and do that later um... and and things like that you know right now let's just eat you know let's not eat and also digest all of our anxiety at the same time no let's be effective let's just eat and later let me pay attention to my anxiety and see what's going on there um, if you can do that so it's the idea is to just do what works. in reality i hate to have to stop you probably are fine with it but um... i'm going to stop now i uh have appreciated talking with all of you. I want to say, again, Happy New Year to everybody, and I hope that these things will be helpful to you to tune in to the broadcasts now and then. And remember that the 17th and 31st of January, it will be a, a conversation with Cedar Coons, and I will send out notices wherever I always send notices, so maybe you get those. Okay, Or go to my website, charlieswinson.com, and you'll find it there. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.